0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keenom, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Sunday, October the 22nd, 2023. On the show, we're always in the business of uh, reminding people that stories aren't always truthful particularly stories that countries and communities tell themselves, although sometimes there needs to be an element of fiction. But perhaps the biggest problem in America today is that the story we, I mean we Americans or Americans uh, in general who uh, tell themselves, is not just a little bit untrue, but is profoundly wrong. It's made up, it's fictionalized. We've done so many shows on this uh, yesterday did a show with Alyssa Quart um on life on the edge of the world's richest country she has edited a new book going for broke and the uh reminder of the subtitle living on the edge in the world's richest country underlines the absurdity of life in america today we did a couple of shows last week with two contributors to the volume uh one andrea dobbins wagner uh a woman who lives in Tuscaloosa reminded us of how unjust and probably the racist the system is another with annabel Gerwich uh, a los angeles based uh, best selling writer and actress on the experience of taking in a homeless couple in los angeles and what life is like in los angeles in this vivid contrast this great chasm between those that have money and those that don't. It's increasingly like, indeed, the France of the early 19th century that Alexis de Tocqueville came from to embrace democratic America. And, indeed, next week, have got a show with the New York Times uh, economics writer David Leonhardt. Ours was the shining future. He writes uh, a book about the death of the American dream, or at least the lie of the American dream, the myth of the American dream. And that, indeed, is what we're talking about today with Jeff Fuhrer. Another book, The Myth That Made Us, How False beliefs About Racism and Meritocracy Broke Our Economy and How to Fix It. Jeff Fuhrer is a um, long-time economic bigwig. He was at the Federal Reserve Bank in Boston. He's a fellow now uh, at an interesting new... Uh, uh, foundation called the eastern bank foundation he's very much bound up also with the brookings foundation and he's joining us from his home in acton massachusetts jeff uh, welcome congratulations on the new book is the american dream is it a myth is it a lie is that what's really going wrong with america today
1: i think it's a big part of what's going wrong uh it's it's a great aspiration isn't it i mean saying that if you work hard and put your nose to the grindstone everything's going to work out well sounds great i wish it were true um and i think going way back in our country's history we have wanted to believe that Uh, it is certainly not true today a great aspiration but a poor description of reality
0: is it less true today than it's ever been i mean we know that in the 50s where there was a great deal of mobility it still was a profoundly racist society and a society very hard for women to get on but is america in the in the 2020s is it is the american dream more mythological today than it that it's ever been in american history
1: <laughs> well I'm, I'm not sure that's quite true because i think there are times in the 19th century and before when things look pretty bad for many many folks but i guess what's striking is that while in the aggregate our economy has progressed Uh, markedly, dramatically. So there's lots of income generated in the economy. The distribution is really, really quite unequal. And so too is the distribution of wealth. Um, I also, I think starting somewhere around the 1980s, the structure of the private sector changed dramatically so that as we were making more and more income in the aggregate, we we were cutting out whole swaths of people from opportunity. And obviously, none more so than families of color during that period. So, you know, I don't want to draw (laughs) comparisons to the Middle Ages. Things were pretty dark back then, as I understand it. Uh, But given the overall level of prosperity, things look really bleak for folks. And lots of families, lots of families who, despite the narrative, um, are actually working really hard and not succeeding, not generating enough income really to meet basic necessities in this economy.
0: Yeah, and America, of course, is a post-medieval society, or supposedly, <laughs> although there are more and more of manifestations of the Middle Ages in the America of the 21st century. You mm-hmm. mentioned um, the, the structure of the private sector. Many people associate that with the birth of neoliberalism in the 1980s. We've done many shows on that. Like the historian Gary Gerstle, who's written the book on the rise and what he now sees as the fall of neoliberalism do you are you comfortable with that term jeff neoliberalism and did america make um a wrong neoliberal turn in the 1980s
1: so not i'm not a political scientist but i would say that you're an economist yes exactly so for better or worse i sometimes say i'm a recovering economist because there's much damage done in the economics profession but i'm trying to escape that you know, I would say we did make a bit of a, of a wrong turn. Uh, in the name of trying to be both liberal and free market you know embracing free market wisdom, if you will, I think we over-embraced the free market side of it uh, to the detriment of lots of folks. So you know, again, not a political science guy, but yes, uh, from the reading I've done about the economic history, we, we made a wrong turn. We you know, no better example. Than the response to the great recession and financial crisis of 2007 8 9 even in a a pretty progressive democratic administration there were there were concerns not about how much aid to extend to the financial sector we did great for them but concerns about well you know can we save people keep them in their houses help pay their mortgages that's really dangerous because of the you know the ubiquitous moral hazard problem people would take advantage of that when in fact if we had done that We would not only i think have kept more people in their houses reduced the severity of the recession and frankly helped the financial markets as a side benefit but we chose not to do that because those are ordinary folks they're not our rich brilliant financial market participants and that i think reveals something about our priorities and how we think about guided by these narratives that we think about every day and especially lower income families
0: you've mentioned a couple of times jeff already that you're not a political scientist um (laughs) I don't even know what a political scientist is, and I'm not sure there is such a thing as political science. But this is a political book, The Myth That Made Us, How False Beliefs About Racism and Meritocracy Broke Our Economy and How to Fix It. So for better or worse, you are making political statements, aren't you?
1: So I stay away from partisan politics in the book for two reasons. Um, But one is I think just that it becomes quickly divisive and one half of the audience will depart and go seek another information channel. But the other is that it's not the case that all the damage done in the economy is only uh, due to conservative thought. They certainly bear their perhaps disproportionate share, but there have been some folks on the progressive side who have hewed to these, you know, free market, I guess you call them neoliberal uh, principles and done serious damage. So yeah, it, it is unavoidable to talk about these issues and run into some political backlash and so on but uh, i'm not trying to make a political argument per se what i'm trying to make is a data-based fact-based historically accurate i hope argument that in theory at least i'm not so naive as to believe in practice but in theory could appeal to both sides of the aisle because ultimately it's about providing opportunity for every kid born in this country and to me that seems like a good big tent appeal
0: yeah it may appeal to both sides or it may appeal to neither that's possible to, um, that's We uh, you, you talked about the changes in the structure of the private sector. Did a show last week, with the New York Times uh, writer Jonas Serra. He has a new book out called The Big Fail. Again, the same book, the same subject, this time focusing on COVID. He places a lot of the problems at the door of private equity how, how, uh, and the way in which the private equity is essentially shaping the structure of the private sector. I, is there some truth to that?
1: There may be. I, I, I see actually some, sign, some cause for hope in the response to the pandemic and the reason is as follows. So I think in the face of a, an easily identifiable and more or less inanimate enemy, this, this virus that was sweeping the globe, we were able to immediately attach urgency to that pandemic and urgency to the responses. And move quickly in ways that we have not done in recent history. Uh, The kinds of programs that both the Federal Reserve and the the administrations put together um, were really actually quite dramatic. We can argue about how effective they were and so on. I think I think they did some things reasonably well, but I actually see hope in that response to COVID and it's because rather than pointing to a nebulous cause like, you know, income inequality, where does that come from? Hard to say for the average person. The average person can very quickly Impute the source of their difficulties to this virus, and I think that actually worked better as an organizing principle. Started off under a Republican administration, you know, you can we can discuss how effective they were in all sorts of ways, but um, in the end, uh, we we saw that as a reasonably urgent uh, problem that needed to be addressed with significant significant measures. The role of private equity is harder to ascertain, and I, I I'm not a, a close student of that, so I'm hesitant to weighed in Uh, too much on
0: uh, it uh, hold on a minute go ahead you you can't you know you you you're a very distinguished economist you you were the top economic student in your year at princeton you got a phd from harvard you you worked at the federal reserve in boston for many years you're one of this country's leading economists you can't just dodge these questions say well i'm not an expert (laughs) on private equity uh, equity so i can't comment on it isn't Jeff isn't this the problem that your class your elite is 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 hiding behind this kind of technocratic shield and not I'm not saying you personally are responsible but the the responsibility needs to be shared by elites like yourself
1: oh absolutely Especially so I'm the not...
0: economists, since you were supposed to be in charge of the economy
1: <laughs> which would that it were so easy uh, to be in charge No, I don't mean to shrug any of that all right so look what I'll say is that um so my understanding of, of private equity is that, yes, it has done some damage because like other developments in the private sector, it has put a lot of workers' fates at arm's length from the corporation. So that is private equity owners come in, they make sweeping management decisions without typically considering the fate of the average employee. And that's not unique to private equity uh, run corporations because it happens in, you know, publicly public equity owned corporations as well but it's of a piece with them and i i I do say in the book and i believe this is true this ability to put the average worker at a distance from management and in many cases from the corporation not always providing opportunities for advancement within the corporation is a first order problem and it is limited opportunity for a whole bunch of folks not the folks who sit in the c-suite obviously not the owners who are shuffling billions of dollars on the deck of the proverbial Titanic. It's the, uh, it's the average worker who gets left behind. So again, I don't mean to shrug that. I just don't want to tell you, man, I've studied 10 years, what's going on in private equity, but yes, I will agree that that phenomenon is of a type with other things going on in the private sector, which has done serious damage to a whole swath of workers. And I don't mean like two to 3% of the workers. I mean like 30 or 40% of the families in the economy. That's a huge number of folks for us to somehow feel comfortable with leaving behind.
0: We are speaking with Jeff Fuhrer, the author of a, of a very important new book. And there are so many of these kinds of books, but he's as well-placed as anyone to, to, to write this book, The Myth That Made Us, How False Beliefs About Racism and Meritocracy Broke Our Economy and How to Fix It. We're going to get to the fixing later, Jeff, but what is the myth that made us? Why did you choose this title?
1: A myth because it's, it's, uh, it's probably false. So the myth comprises uh, a few different elements that are essentially embedded in our national dna and we've already alluded to one of them that's a sort of meritocracy myth all you need to do is work hard and you'll succeed as i said that's a great aspiration it's just not a good description of reality the problem with it is not just that people use it individuals use it to describe what's going on it's twofold if you turn it on its head it implies that if you're not succeeding you must not have worked hard or made bad decisions. So you, all of the people who are in the lower income echelons, lower wealth echelons of the economy, it's their fault. They didn't work hard. So that's a problem. Even more imp- important in my view is that that same narrative has been used historically by f- people of power, either economic power or political power, to structure an economy that is very, very stingy in affording opportunity, basically telling you to go pick yourself up by your bootstraps and get to work and everything's going to be fine, ignoring that the initial conditions that many people start at are far different. Great family support, great family wealth, great networks, uh, all of that. Um, living in, in neighborhoods that have resources, that have great schools and so on. And and yes, of course, those kids are more likely to get ahead. They have all the resources and, and, and so on to support them. Whereas in other places, due to no fault of these kids and really no fault of their parents, generally, they have far fewer resources and so on to to advance. And so using that narrative, to deny the opportunity when in fact we, we we have structured an economy that delivers exactly those results over and over again, and then blaming it on the individuals for not being able to succeed, that is a serious problem. When you overlay that with the institutional racism that's been operating in our economy since its inception, in our country since its, its inception, now you have really corrosive explanations for why families of color disproportionately are in the lower income and lower wealth ranks of this economy and that is it's it's disrespectful it's ignorant it's corrosive and it's going to continue to leave way too many people behind in in my view
0: talked about bootstraps you had an interesting uh uh, blog on bootstraps and Alyssa court who's politically on the left has a new book out this year called bootstrap liberating ourselves from the american dream yep what i don't understand jeff about what you're saying and your approach is you basically agree with what Alyssa is saying, and many people on the left. W- why are you so scared of associating yourself with a political camp? Uh,
1: <laughs> well, I'm not scared. My my I don't mean scared. I yeah. don't mean
0: I, uh, that in a pejorative sense. No, why no. won't you do it?
1: Um, I, I'm I'm happy to say what my political leanings are. I am left of center, and I have been for quite some time. There's no question about that. And my voting, re- you know, who I contribute money to is is public record. What I don't want to do is resort to what I see in some books, which is that a, what I would call a humanitarian progressive agenda, um, at the same time hurls invective at the other side, just demeaning their position. And while I, you know, in the privacy of my own home, sometimes I feel that way too. Part of the problem uh, with this, the system today is that we do not, we are not able to talk to each other from either side of the aisle. So that where I think we could agree on some facts, um, and then discuss what we do about them. If we begin by saying, you know, I'm a, I'm a liberal and I cannot stand conservatives because they've been idiots for decades. Wh- wh- where's the conversation going Kurt? It's not, I'm going to be only talking to folks who agree with me. And I think the facts themselves and the history are so compelling that I am naively optimistic that some folks at the center and even somewhat to the right of center might listen to that and say, you know, maybe there is something there. So I'm not disavowing you know what my political leanings are. Happy to say that, but I am running away from a strategy that immediately disassociates yourself from a possible conversation with folks who don't all agree with you.
0: Jeff, you described yourself as a recovering uh, economist, <laughs> right? Um, you know many other economists. the The argument that began all this was an argument amongst economists about Keynes and Friedman and Hayek. Do you think that most economists now accept, even economists who were originally in the Hayek-Friedman camp, that the reforms of the 80s and 90s have gone profoundly wrong, not just in the United States, but globally?
1: I I wish that were true. I don't think so. I was just speaking um, at the Federal Reserve in Dallas last week and talking to folks who are saying, uh, who work in economic development on behalf of the fed system there. And they said, you know, still today, as of that day, when I speak to economists, they're saying, wait, how could any of this be that the stuff that you're describing, Jeff, or anyone in this cohort of authors you've, you've already referred to, how could this be? Because wouldn't that leave money on the table? Doesn't it, uh, doesn't it run counter to the rational man story? Uh, it, isn't it inefficient to operate in that way? and when i hear that i am i'm it, it, so it is still going on i'm afraid to say i think there's more acceptance among more economists but not even close to universal i am shocked when i hear it because to me it suggests a distinct lack of intel- intellectual curiosity it's trivial and easy and maybe comforting to keep applying the same old stories and models to what we observe in the world it's just you know it's like saying I can write down a fancy model, a theoretical model that explains why CEOs should earn 370 times the median employee in their, in their firm. It's like, yeah, I can do that too. Would you believe it for a second? No. So it's just, it's a very, very narrow. And in some ways I think some economists are afraid that the foundations that they've built that, you know, the, the rational man stuff over the last hundred years would crumble. and it's possible that it would the question is what do you replace it with is it something that explains the world better that that comes to grips with the facts of what we've actually done and and recognizes yes the political machinations that have gone into constructing in this way that continue to send benefits to incredibly powerful wealthy individuals and large corporations can you cope with that can you deal with that and think about what you do in response or do you have to you know recluse yourself in this little monastery of pure thought where everything's perfect and rational and how could it be otherwise? And I was like, well, take a look outside. One of the things that right, I, it's not taking if, the look ahead, outside, sorry. it's
0: not just our opinion of what's happening outside. For people watching Jeff sitting in a in his home in Acton, Massachusetts, there's a window behind him. It doesn't seem to me, Jeff, as if it's raining. You can prove it one way or the other whether yes. it's raining. You could open the window and you could put your hand out. So some of this stuff is provable, quantifiably. It's not just a matter of opinion, isn't it?
1: Agreed. Agreed. No, there's no question. The the outcomes are absolutely clear, although I'm somewhat dismayed that there are more and more people who are discarding um, not only the, the voices of expert opinion, and that's a, that's a complex social phenomenon, but also just doubting that data is telling us something accurate. And for those folks, I'd say, look, first of all, that's that's not a well-founded doubt but maybe more importantly, do what I did in the book and what other people who have worked in this area have done. And that is take a walk into a community where people are not the same as you, you know, you middle, upper middle class white guy or woman. Take a walk, get to know some people, talk, listen actually, mostly listen to folks who live in those areas and then come back to me and say, uh, it's, not, it's not what Jeff says, there's other stuff going, I don't believe it's that bad. It's like, actually get to know some people. This, I think, if it could happen, is actually how narratives will change, because it's how important narratives have changed in the past. Right. Three times. They, yep. Sorry, go. On. No, no. I was going to say when you think about the the horrible LGBTQ narrative that was in common circulation when I was a kid in the nineteen seventies, um, that was insane. I, I'm embarrassed to say that we, you know, we all used it. How did that change? Well, because we found out over time through the courage of people who came out that folks in the LGBTQ community were our friends, parents, daughters, uh, neighbors, co-workers. We learned that we already cared about those folks. It's forced us to break that narrative of otherness, that these are folks who don't deserve the same care, human rights and uh, political voice that everybody else has. Now, what I'm suggesting, you know, in this very stylized way, is we could do the same
0: thing. I, I want to get to fixes. Jeff. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. So we'll, we'll do Maybe that. We'll hold off on off that. Right. But, uh, as somebody once wrote, uh, you don't have to be a, me- a weatherman to know which way the weather's going. Right. Um, we are talking with Jeff Fuhrer, the author of The Myth That Made Us, another book about the crisis or death or lie of the American dream. And it's a particularly important one because Jeff is a major player in the American economy. He used to be a very powerful figure within the uh, Boston Reserve, uh, the Reserve Bank of Boston, Federal Reserve of Boston. He's a PhD from Harvard, top economics student at Princeton, so he knows what he's talking about. He admits he's a recovering economist, but once you study, Jeff, I guess you'll never recover.
1: Never
0: uh, I also want to thank, uh, we're going to talk about fixes, but I want to thank our sponsor, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, uh, which addresses a lot of these issues in a cultural and political sense um i'm going to run a short ad for liberties and then we'll be back with jeff to talk about fixes his 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 subtitle of his book and how to fix it so we're coming back with jeff uh, fuhrer mr fix it to fix america if you stay with us for the next three th- 33 and a half seconds don't go away anyone beyond the news the noise there is nuance insight And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are talking with Jeff uh, Fuhrer, the author of The Myth That Made Us and one of America's top economists in practice. So, Jeff, the book comes with a promise that you can fix it. <laughs> so, I, as I said, you are Mr. Fix-It. It's your job, even if you are a recovering economist. How are we going to deal with this?
1: So, my focus is on a, a couple of different things types of policies, but primarily, they're, they're policies and changes to structure that provide better access to build both financial capital, wealth, if you will, and human capital, obviously, education, uh, training, and the like. Those are so important because often the focus is, is solely on just transferring resources from one group to another, and I'll come back to that. But these are fundamentally what economic growth is about. And the beauty there is that in the end, that doesn't have to be a zero-sum game. It's not only about taking from some and giving to others. And I'm in favor of some of that. But in the long run, the result of it is a growth in the size of the economy. So I talk about uh, what others have. So Jim Hackman, who is a Nobel Prize winning economist, has produced with all of his co-authors and collaborators terrific research to show that early childhood education is a dead winner. And it's expensive, roughly $22,000 per child per year. but it's it's cheap compared to the cost of uh, keeping things the way they are. and then more specifically, if you invested that twenty two thousand bucks or in the aggregate, if you invested let's say two hundred billion dollars to bring every kid in the country uh, who can't afford it, um high quality early childhood education, it would pay back sixfold in terms of higher wages, um, better health care outcomes, lower incidence of criminal justice stuff and and it just it is a dead winner. It is a terrific investment, so i I start there. I also shout out to folks in the community college system in the U.S. because it is undervalued and chronically underfunded, and yet it educates more than 40% of our post-secondary school uh, young adults, um, disproportionately low com- income and disproportionately kids, of young adults of color. And there there are a number of things that you could do. But one that I particularly focus on is this: what I think is a very promising practice of linking High schools, whether they're routine high schools or technical high schools, two community colleges, two private employers, to provide a really clear path pathway or pipeline from high school right into a job that will pay a wage that actually allows people—not like you know, fifteen dollars an hour does not really allow most people to live in most any place in this country. Um, we didn't get a chance to talk about that, but it's one of the most striking statistics—not who's above or below the poverty line, but how many folks don't make enough to make it any place in the country using reasonable budget estimates. So that community college uh, piece I think is really important that we can fund those sorts of programs. They also pay back handsomely, um, Typically over the, over the lifetime wage increases would be five times the investment in the community college education. That's another really good investment. Um, I talked a little bit about some, some crappy jobs that exist because of the way, yes, private equity and others have structured the private workplace. There's some things to do there in terms of boosting wages and providing more uh, widespread benefits. The one I want to touch on that is more controversial but I think equally important is addressing wealth gaps, wealth disparities, which by now should be well known um, to your listeners and to, to, I hope, many folks around the U.S. So wealth gaps just between the the very wealthiest overall who hold a massive amount of the wealth Compared to say the bottom 50% of wealth holders who own a tiny fraction a percent or two of overall wealth That's in the population at large and then of course it's compounded when we look at the, the disparities by race and ethnicity where The median net worth of a white family is around seven times that of an african-american family or an hispanic family So we need to do something to address those why because wealth is not a it's not about luxury It's a necessity to navigate the economy. It's ne- necessary To provide some buffer so that when inevitably there's a shock to your income, a disruption to your income, or a spending shock you get, you have to pay for a boiler or a new car or whatever, what does that do to families who don't have wealth? It puts them into a downward spiral rapidly. If you're a community college kid who's trying to make his way through uh, to get the additional credentials and and human capital to be more productive, and you have a, a shock like that to your economic circumstances, if there's no wealth to buffer you, you drop out of school. You have to, you've got to go back to work or go to increase your hours at work to make up for what you're missing. Of course, wealth also provides opportunities uh, to invest in education and housing and entrepreneurship and to provide for a secure retirement. It is not a luxury. It's a first order essential thing. And of course, many people have written about that. So we need to confront seriously what those wealth gaps are and figure out how to address them. And uh, for the racial wealth gap, you know, the the, the third rail there, uh, and I say, people told me not to use this word, but I will continue to use the word reparations. It is a moral imperative, in my view, that our country come to a reckoning with what it did institutionally, systematically, to a whole host of people, none more than American slaves, but also uh, Hispanics, uh, Asians in many cases, indigenous people, for crying out loud, have been destroyed systematically. We did that. We did it as a country, while at the same time, as Martin Luther King Jr. likes to say, we propped up. Our European peasants, as he calls them in one of his speeches, uh, we propped them up with enormous government resources. The New Deal was a, a huge, huge wealth builder, government-based wealth builder that did, was successful in building wealth for many, not all, but many white families while leaving behind families of color. We have to think seriously about how to do that, whether it's reparations or baby bonds, which is a somewhat bigger tent sort of a, a program where deposits are made in every kid's account um but based on their income and wealth uh, that the, the the family income and wealth so that of course it will disproportionately benefit those who have suffered the most that is families of color or baby bonds or even down payment assistance not always my favorite way to build wealth because housing is owner occupied housing is, is tricky as a wealth builder it turns out but it, it can work and that if you provide down payment assistance that's significant 25 dollars, that's a wealth transfer that's an equity That can be given to a family in order to get themselves into more stable housing circumstances so those are some of the solutions i talk about are they easy no and do they cost something absolutely not much compared to the loss that's inherent in the current system but still a lot and in that regard i want to point to two sources number one corporate profits large corporations made profits of 2.6 trillion dollars last year nice some of that was put to productive use but 40% 40 percent a little more than 40 percent over a trillion dollars went to buying back their own stocks to prop up stock prices who benefits from that well the wealthy the stockholders who loses the workers who didn't get it in wages or benefits so that's one source a trillion dollars annually think of what you could do with that and of course they would work mightily to avoid having those profits transferred but that's a thing to think about the second is the irs two weeks ago uh updated a number that i put in the book on unpaid taxes largely by Wealthy individuals and large corporations of six hundred and seventy billion dollars each year. Now, I know it's not fashionable to staff up the IRS right now, but if if you staff them up and get access to p- taxes that should have been paid of close to seven hundred billion dollars a year, I can think of great ways to deploy those resources. So, is it expensive? Yes. Do we have the aggregate wherewithal to do it? Probably. Do we have the political will? Not yet. How do we get there? We have to change some narratives for starters.
0: So you are ultimately for all your. Your talk of economics and being a recovering economist—you, you, you're, you're a political writer. You, you talk about changing the tax system. Are you in the Piketty camp of radically changing taxation?
1: I think so. I, I liked Piketty's most recent book. He is, um, a bit more radical in the in the sense of uh, dramatically transformative radical than I am, in that he's talking about global uh, wealth and income sharing. And I, I, you know, I, I can't even see a path to that. But, you know, generally speaking, yes, I am for something that really changes the way the economic landscape works. Some of that has to do with taxation. Some of that has to do with how corporations essentially care for their employees. Can you imagine being the CEO of a large corporation, knowing that you send home, let's say, 30, it's a conservative, 30% of your workers go home. And the only way they survive is by using government benefits for food and for housing and utilities. Thank God they're there but that's the way they survive. Would you feel good about that as a CEO? How do you, and and then say, but at the same time, I made record profits last year, many of which I used to buy back my stock. Is that reasonable? I don't think so. I don't think so.
0: What do you make of people like, and I don't want to pick on Mark Benioff, but he's an easy person to pick on. People like Benioff who run very successful private companies and who jet off to Davos and Ted conferences and, and and, 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 talk this stuff up, but don't actually fundamentally change their economy. Do you believe in in what people call social capitalism, the idea that our current captains of industry have a conscience and can reform the system from within? Or do we need government to fundamentally change the rules?
1: I think there are a few, a modest number at best uh, CEOs with conscience who believe the words they say, and and some of them will actually take action, but that is very small. And frankly, no, I'm not optimistic that the change will come from within. Um, Zeynab, I don't know if you talked to Zainab Tan from MIT. Who yeah, to- I
0: had Zainab Tan a couple of weeks ago.
1: She's a great, great researcher, but she's trying to get essentially um, corporations to see that it's in their self-interest to do well by their workers, which I applaud. And that's great. I do not believe that that will be sufficient to really turn this ship around. No, I think the only way to do that is provide incentives through changes in taxation and so on um, to get corporations to coordinate around a solution that the American public believes would be best for all of us. I'm not sure that latter statement is true yet, but I'd like to believe it can be true that we would have an American public that believes in that. And if they do, uh, then no, I just don't, don't see the private sector wholesale making a change there business models are so deeply ingrained. Thanks to Jack Welch, Milton Friedman in yeah, Welch.
0: Uh, there was a book written about the responsibility of Welch. I, I yes. And the more I listen to you, Jeff, the more depressed, I have to admit, the more depressed <laughs> they get. I'm sorry. You, well, you shouldn't apologize. I mean, you're telling the truth, but it's I'm a trying. very unpalatable, depressing truth. On the one hand, you're exposing what's really happening. On the other hand, you're looking at the state, government regulators to fix this the American government is so dysfunctional on so many levels and secondly while what you're saying is disturbing what's on the horizon is even more disturbing I'm talking to you from San Francisco Mm -hmm. whereas as as you know as well as I do there's a current media for AI and for only compounding the forces that you're talking about So if anything, uh, my sense is that things are only going to get worse rather than better, certainly in the short term.
1: Uh, I think that's entirely possible. And I try to, I'm congenitally optimistic. I'm trying to maintain that in the face of studying all these facts, as as have many other people, obviously, to give all of us folks credit, the shoulders on which I'm standing. Um, I'm trying to be optimistic because I think at heart, when I go to talk to real people, not politicians, not corporate titans, But the real people who live in our economy they are as a rule of course there are exceptions they are rule they are good-hearted they are willing to help one another out where they can and if we could figure out a political organizing mechanism that let that sentiment express itself more forcefully at the national level
0: say that again i'm going to jump on that one explain what you mean by that
1: so what i'm saying is what we need is political leaders who rather than tap into hatred and fear and anxiety and otherness they tap into what i think is a basic tendency so you know when i go to visit and, and to some extent live with to i don't want to overplay that but visit uh, low-income communities communities of color and i've done that for the last 15 20 years when i talk to people they're hardworking, they're absolutely willing to help out their neighbors they're not playing into these uh, media f- fomented um, hatred memes that that politicians love to use because it gets them reelected. If we could find a leader who's willing to tap into the positive parts of what most American citizens believe, recognizing that not we're not all going to agree on everything, but we do agree on basic humanity, that you should not leave kids behind. Kids become young adults, you shouldn't leave young adults behind they need to have a chance and they know only too well that they're not getting the same opportunity that I got when I was a kid. They know that they are completely aware of it. If there was a, let's say the democratic party woke up, um, and I'm affiliated with it, but I want them to wake up and say, look, yes, you should continue to pound the pavements on making progress on racial economic justice. You should also pound the pavements on making progress on white family economic equality because there's a bunch of white families, who are largely flocking to the Republican Party because you haven't done anything for them. And if so, if their leadership to channel that basic human impulse to actually try to help each other out instead of instigating fear, hatred, and otherness among our populations so as to divide us up and get one party or another elected, I'm somewhat optimistic that that actually is a strategy with the right kind of leader um, and the right kind of grassroots organization to build support for that, that we could make changes like this but it will take some time
0: take some time find a leader again you're depressing me that <laughs> the, the 2024 election is likely be, be between two very very old men one who seems to be a psychopath the other who barely is alive uh it, it, the biggest scarcity talking economics in america today is leadership where's that leader going to come from
1: um so I think leadership is going to come from folks who are somewhat younger for sure and put more put diverse it mildly,
0: but find a way.
1: And more diverse. Well, those those leaders. So I'm that I am optimistic about. I have met emerging leaders in the communities, lower income communities around the country, particularly in New England, I spend more time, but around the country, frankly, who have all kinds of potential. What we need to persuade them is that the compromises they need to make to get into national politics are worth it given the impact they could have. And then we need to give them the support that we keep giving to old white guys, All right, There's massive support between, b- behind Biden. That's why he's going to be okay, uh, I hope. He will certainly get the nomination. He may actually win the election. But, you know, you, you, you don't. it doesn't take that much imagination to find someone like a Barack Obama who came out of nowhere, who had tremendous political skills and integrity to boot, um are there other people like that that There, yes there are they what they need is to have a party behind them that's willing to work with integrity providing the support they need to make a national splash and then start to exercise real leadership from their core principles and look the core principles of the folks i'm talking about are exactly the ones that i'm espousing in the book they are things about building community about taking care of one another about providing equal opportunity that that's out there it exists But you're right. It is hard to be too optimistic about that. But I'm trying to keep that little glimmer of light there at the end of the tunnel shining because otherwise uh, it it could look really grim. So I'm going to keep holding on to that. I do think it is possible. It's always hard for us to see ex ante, the dramatic changes that can come when somebody emerges on the scene to really make a difference like FDR did or like Barack Obama did. Uh, And then, of course, there was the pushback after that. It's hard to see it ex ante, but it can happen.
0: So this was a good therapy session for you Jeff. You began by <laughs> claiming you're not a political scientist and that you don't know nothing about politics. You ended on a on a on a strongly political note calling for new political leaders and maybe even a new political party.
1: Could be. I don't know how that would work in our system, but boy if if it doesn't throw the balance of power to the really far right, destructive side of the country, I'm all for it, but I'm not sure that that's what would happen. Or I'm and not finally,
0: sure that... very, very briefly, Jeff, yes. you're an economist, so you know this stuff. What happens if we don't fix it? Where will America be in 50 years? I think,
1: so. I think this is an existential crisis that's a, on the same par as climate change. That's what I think. Because if we don't address the fact, so to my, my estimate, there are between 40 and 60% of families in this country are not making it economically. This is, that is, they don't get enough between what they earn and what the government gives them to meet basic expenses. That is an embarrassment in a country as wealthy as we are. Over time that's going to express itself in terms of political unrest is my guess. Not being a political science, but I'm yeah, guessing.
0: Right. Yeah, but you you can't. You know it already. I, I think it's that's right. Half the people voting for Trump are doing it because like, of that reason.
1: Right. And that's why I say an outreach to them that shows that that party is doing nothing for them, uh, whereas the Democratic Party could at least, if they organize better, could do something for them, and I hope they will. Um, that That could make a difference. Even if they only moved five to six percentage points of those folks, of the population in that direction, you know, we're done. That's a, that's a victory. You're not going to change everybody's mind. Of course, there's some who are super, super stuck to their uh, unfortunate narratives.
0: Jeff, when I did this interview, I thought to myself, I'm going to absolutely make sure I don't make any Fuhrer jokes. And I was determined (laughs) not to, but I have to at the end. What we really need then is a new Fuhrer.
1: Oh, Lord, help me, help me. Cannot tell you, I'm now 66 years old. How many times have I heard those jokes? Every time I say them, I say, if you can come up with a new one, I'll give you a hundred bucks. And that was not a new one. So you don't get the hundred bucks, but I'm willing to take it in good humor.